Well, good morning. And it is great to see you this morning as we are now in week two of this new sermon series. If you are new to Grace, if you haven't been here for a while, let me tell you kind of what we're up to, what we're looking at together this morning. And it all is really related to the vision that we have for you, the vision that we, the elders, have for you, everyone here in this room, those watching online, is that when you stand before the Lord, you will hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. In a thousand years, in 10,000 years, in a hundred thousand years, that is really going to be the only thing that truly matters. And so our vision for you is you hear him say, well done. And the threefold mission to help you prepare for that day is summarized in those words, equip, engage, and exalt. It's our job as elders, as pastors, as Sunday school teachers to equip you with the truth of God's word so that you go engage people with the gospel and then we get the privilege, the delight of coming together every week as a body of Christ and exalting him for who he is and for what he's been doing. This is the mission of Grace Bible Church. And we've already gone through the sermon series of what it is to engage people with the gospel. We've already gone through the sermon series of what it is to exalt God. And now we're in week two of this series of what it is to equip. How we as a church equip you with the truth. And what we're doing as we work through this series is we're looking at what we believe in our doctrinal statement. Last week, we looked at what we believe here at Grace about the Bible, that God has revealed himself, he's made himself known, and we have the privilege of knowing his word. And this morning, we are going to look at another question. Ultimately, who is God? What is it that we believe here at Grace about God? And I want to propose to you this morning really the importance of this, what's truly at stake when we enter into this type of question, who is God? To answer that question, I want to draw upon a prayer from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis once articulated a prayer that goes like this. He said, may it be the real me that worships thee, and may it be the real thou that I worship. May it be the real me that worships thee, and may it be the real thou that I worship. What I'm getting at is, is when we attempt to answer that question, who is God? This is really the most important question you or I could ever ask. What is it that we believe about God? And there on your outline, we're going to attempt to answer that question by looking at three things this morning, and this is going to be the outline of every passage, every uh, sermon that we go through through this doctrinal statement series, the series on equip. We're going to look at a text, we're going to look at a theology, how we've articulated what we believe in our doctrinal statement, and number three, we're going to talk about a takeaway. The text, the theology, and the takeaway. Let's look first at number one on your outline, the text. Now, when we think about choosing or selecting a text to answer the question, who is God and what do we believe specifically about the Godhead and the Trinity, we immediately come to a challenge 
And the challenge is that there is no one passage of Scripture that fully articulates the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, just in the New Testament, there's approximately 120 passages you could look at that help draw out this doctrine of the Trinity. And so I hope you're comfortable this morning as we take a look at those 120 passages together. Um, Actually, what we're going to do is we're going to look at five. We're going to look at five passages just briefly together this morning. And so get ready uh, to flip open to those passages listed there in your outline. We're going to take a brief look at each one. And as we move through these passages together, uh, one of my professors at DTS, Scott Harrell, who taught the class on Trinitarianism, he said that this doctrine of the Trinity is not in the soil, but the subsoil of the New Testament, especially. Right? So in order to dig a little deep, in order to really derive our doctrine of what we believe about the Godhead and the Trinity, we're going to have to look a little deeper than just what's on the surface, but we're going to have to get into the subsoil here of these passages. Somebody after first service told me that their brain hurt a little bit after church. And so uh, put your thinking caps on with me this morning and let's dig a little deeper here into some of these passages. The first one we're going to look at, five passages, five conclusions that I want you to take note of. The first one is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6 a few weeks ago. It's the great Shema, the confession of faith in the Old Testament of the Jewish people. But let me read for you Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This verse begins the the great Shema, the great profession of faith of the Jewish people here in the Old Testament. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now, the particular phrase that I want to lean into a little bit more is that last phrase, the Lord is one. As we look at that word one in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is echad, It's obviously translated here as one. But as we take a look at how that particular word is used other places in the Old Testament, an example I want you to see is in Genesis chapter (coughs) 2. Genesis chapter 2, we see the exact same word used. Here in the creation of man and woman and the creation of marriage. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. One flesh. (coughs) Excuse me. So notice the repetition of that word one. But here in Genesis 2 the word one is used to describe these two human beings coming together, right? Man and woman. Man and woman, two people coming together as one flesh. So flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see again that word, the Lord is one. The conclusion I want you to see here as we look at this passage, 
the Lord is one, but the word for one includes the possibility of plurality. The word one includes the possibility of plurality. So the first conclusion we come to when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one, but one includes the possibility of plurality. That's the first passage. The second passage is John chapter 6. Flip over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus here is speaking to the people. He's just fed the 5,000. He's just walked on water. Verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. I want you to look again at that last phrase. Jesus says, for the Father who is God has set his seal on the Son. The second conclusion I want you to see here as we think about the doctrine of the Trinity is that the Father is God. Jesus here equates the Father with God. So the two conclusions so far, number one, God is one. Number two, the Father is God. Now, I'm assuming that this is probably an obvious statement for you, right? When you think about God, when many people think about God, they think about God the Father. But there is something here that I find rather interesting. If you were to look at our doctrinal statement, if you were to look at most churches' doctrinal statements, and I've looked at many, most churches, including grace, do not have a statement specific to what we believe about God the Father. I'm going to propose to you that we need to add one. We have a statement about what we believe about God the Son. We have a statement about what we believe about God the Spirit. I think we need to add to our statement of faith what we believe about God the Father because a lot of people have a misunderstanding about God the Father. A lot of people think that God the Father is this angry God of the Old Testament who's just waiting for you to mess up so he can send you to hell and he's going to laugh as he sends you to hell, right? That's how a lot of people think about God the Father. Now, when you look at what the Bible says about God the Father, yes, he is a just God, but he's also a compassionate God. He loves you to the point that he sent his son to die for you and he delights when people draw near to him. And so, the second conclusion we see here that I want you to observe is that the Father is God, and I think practically we need to add a statement to our statement of faith about what we believe about God the Father. The third text I want you to look at is John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1, the third major passage for us this morning as we think about the doctrine of the Trinity. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the word in the Gospel of John is a way of talking about the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So notice right off the bat what John, when he writes this Gospel, says about the Word, the Son of God. He says, in the beginning was the Word. In other words, the Son of God is eternal. He's always existed. Number two, he was with God. 
So there's a distinction there between the Father and the Son. But then the third thing he says is that the Word was God. That even eternally, before there was anything, the Son of God was there and the Son of God is God. That's the third major conclusion I want you to see. Number one, God is one. Number two, the Father is God. And number three, the Son is God. In a few weeks, we'll talk more about what it is we believe here at Grace about the person and work of the Son. The next passage I want you to look at is from Acts chapter 5. Flip over to Acts chapter 5, and you can guess probably where this is going. Acts chapter 5 is a fascinating story about a man named Ananias and Sapphira and how they sell a piece of property. They take the profit to the apostles. They say, hey, here's everything, the entire profit. They lie, and then they're struck dead. It's a fascinating passage. Uh, But I want you to notice verses 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it, notice, that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So notice in verse 3, Peter says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he says you've lied to God. Here he is clearly linking the Spirit is God. So the fourth conclusion I want you to see here as we think about this doctrine of the Trinity. Number one, God is one. Number two, the Father is God. Number three, the Son is God. Number four, the Spirit is God. The fifth passage I want you to look at is Matthew chapter 28. Turn to Matthew chapter 28 as we take a look again at a very famous passage here in the New Testament. Jesus gives the Great Commission shortly before his ascension into heaven. He's standing there with his disciples, and he says to them, Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Notice this baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the name, singular, not names, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The fifth conclusion that I want you to see here from Matthew 28 is that although there is a unity, God is one, we see here also a distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So God is one. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And number five, you could say, and yet there are not three gods, but there is one God, one name, one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You with me so far? You're tracking with every word. This is crystal clear, right? The doctrine of the Trinity. All right, well, in case you're confused, let me offer to you a little bit of help from church history. This is a crucial conversation. When we turn into the pages of past in church history, I want to quote for you a snippet of a very important document called the Athanasian Creed. 
the Athanasian Creed, and I want you to listen up. There will be a test after church, and so listen to the words of the Athanasian Creed of, as how the doctrine of the Trinity is articulated. Are you ready? The Athanasian Creed reads this way. The Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, and the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is incomprehensible, the Son is incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit is incomprehensible. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Holy Spirit is eternal, and yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, and the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit is almighty, and yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. Say thank you to St. Athanasius. It completely clarifies what we believe about the doctrine of the Trinity, right? I want to let you in a little secret that I'm going to touch in on later. One of the takeaways that you and I need to understand about this doctrine of the Trinity is that this truly is beyond our comprehension. That when we attempt to answer that question, who is God? And we consider all of the evidence in the Bible about the triune God that we worship. One of the places it brings us is to the realization that there is a mystery that cannot be solved. And this ultimately brings us, in my opinion, to a place of comfort. And I mean no offense to you and no offense to myself, but if we could truly comprehend who it is that this God is, if we could fully make mastery of him in our minds, then he's not all that great. A few of the takeaways that we're going to look at later is that this doctrine of the Trinity, although confusing, ultimately should bring us to comfort that our God really is beyond our comprehension. He is known. He has revealed himself to us. We saw that last week. And yet the mystery is at the same time, he's beyond our comprehension. But nevertheless, there are things that we know about who God is. And I want to take a closer look at number two on your outline, what it is we believe here at Grace about the Godhead. There on the back side of your outline, under number one, I've listed there for you from our, from our doctrinal statement what it is that we believe about the Godhead. Let me read this for you. This is under number one, under application questions. The Godhead. We believe in one triune God, existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal in being, identical in essence, equal in power and glory, and having the same attributes and perfections. So this is years ago, I believe S. Lewis Johnson, what he articulated about what we believe about the Godhead here at Grace. I want to break this down just kind of piece by piece for the next few minutes. And before we look at the details, I want to remind you again, truly, what is at stake in this conversation? 
What is at stake in this conversation? Gerald Bray, a European theologian, said that without the doctrine of the Trinity, there is no Christian faith. Without the doctrine of the Trinity, there is no Christian faith. Again, if we get this wrong, it's going to be a bad thing. So while it's a mystery, while it's incomprehensible, there are nevertheless some very important ideas we need to understand. Let's look at some details here in our doctrinal statement. First, it says, we believe in one triune God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. I emphasize this pretty heavy under number one on your outline. We believe in one triune God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, not three gods. Over church history, as people have tried to explain the doctrine of the Trinity over and over again in our attempts to explain it, we ultimately fall into bad theology and even heresy. Uh, We do not believe that there are three gods. We're not tri-theists. We believe that there is one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what these phrases mean. The next thing I want to look at is the description there, eternal in being and identical in essence. We believe of these persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are eternal in being and identical in essence. Now, like I just said, throughout church history, as people have attempted to explain who God is, who the Father is, the Son is, the Spirit is, they have introduced all sorts of bad theology into the conversation. And these phrases, I believe, are meant to address some of those heresies that emerged through church history. For example, uh, there was uh, one famous heretic who taught that Jesus is not eternal, that he was created. He was the first creation of the Father. So that phrase, eternal in being, negates that idea, right? We do not believe that Jesus was created. We do not believe that the Holy Spirit was created. The Father, Son, and Spirit are eternal in being. Also, identical in essence, that Father, Son, and Spirit are identical in essence. If you read other statements of faith or some of the creeds from church history, you might see the phrase, of the same substance. Of the same substance. That is, there is this divine existence, or substance, or essence, And only the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have it. They are of the same substance or they are identical in essence. And then the last phrases I want you to see there, equal in power and glory and having the same attributes and perfections. These phrases are related to one another. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, although they have distinct roles, the Father is not the Son nor the Spirit, the Son is not the Father nor the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. They have very distinct roles and functions. They are nevertheless equal in power and glory and have the same attributes and perfections. Again, in the coming weeks, we're going to get into detail about what it is we believe about the Son, what it is we believe about the Spirit, and in about a month or so, I'm going to give you my proposal 
for what we should add to our doctrinal statement about what we believe about the Father. So that's just uh, to whet your appetite. More to come later. There's another phrase that I think we need to add to our doctrinal statement when it comes to what we believe about the Trinity. Again, this is no knock to S. Lewis Johnson. He's way more brilliant than I am. Um, But there's just a few recommendations I'm going to make to you, some proposals of what we need to add to our doctrinal statement. And one of the things that I would like to add as we consider the Trinity is I think we need to add something to the effect that the persons of the Trinity are worthy of the same worship and obedience. That the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are worthy of the same worship and obedience. And the reason I think this is important is because um, we can tend to emphasize one person of the Trinity at the exclusion of others. Uh, James White, a theologian, he says, some people have become so enamored with the Spirit that the Father and the Son are lost in the haze of emotions. Others are so focused upon the Father that they lose sight of the love of the Son and the joy and the empowerment of the Spirit. He says, one thing the doctrine of the Trinity does is to always call us back to the balanced center point. We are never allowed to elevate one person to the expense of the others since the fullness of deity dwells in each one completely. So I think we need to add to our statement of faith about what we believe about the Trinity, this idea that each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is worthy of our same worship and obedience. Even in the songs that we sing, uh, there's a handful of songs written about God the Father. There's a whole bunch of them written about Jesus. There's very few of them in our circles written about the Spirit. And I think we need to have a balanced uh, worship. We recognize that each person of the Trinity is worthy of the same worship and obedience. Let's pause right here. I know this is a lot. Again, someone in first service said that their brain hurt a little bit at the end of this message. This is an intellectual message. But I want to propose to you that the difficulty of this is actually a good thing. One of my favorite quotes I believe I've shared with you before is from Augustine, who said, we are talking about the things of God. What marvel if we can't comprehend? Because if we can comprehend, then he is not God. What marvel if we can't comprehend? Because if we can comprehend, then he is not God. If I can fully comprehend this infinite God with my puny little brain, then he's not all that great. As confusing as the doctrine of the Trinity is, as head-scratching as it might be, ultimately, I think it should bring us to a place of humility. It should bring us to a place of worship, of humbly recognizing that this God truly is beyond our comprehension. That God and the study of God, he is not meant to be a subject to be mastered, but ultimately a God to be worshipped. I love what B.B. Warfield says. He says, there's nothing in the universe like him, so there's nothing which can help us comprehend him. 
There's nothing in the universe like him. So there's nothing that can help us ultimately comprehend him. So let's take a look at number three on your outline. As difficult as this doctrine might be, there are some very practical takeaways for you and I this morning, and I've alluded to them already. The first major takeaway is one of humility. When we enter into a study of who God is, as we attempt to answer the question with all of the information we have, the reliable, inspired information in the Bible, nevertheless, we're brought to a place of humility. J.I. Packer says that the doctrine of the Trinity confronts us with the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle. (laughs) This is the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle, that God is one, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit of God, and yet there are not three gods but one God, right? Try to make sense of the math. This is the most difficult thought the human mind has ever been asked to handle, and it ultimately brings us or should bring us to a place of humility. The second thing that I'd consider for your takeaway is that this study is also designed to bring us to a place of worship. The Athanasian Creed, if you were to keep reading it, says that so that in all things, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshiped. The ultimate place that this study brings us is to a place of worship. So what does that look like? Let me give you a few ideas. First, what is the, where does the worship of God the Father look like? The first thing I would propose is that we need to specifically remember him. Again, I, I'm going to really press hard on this that I think we need to add a statement to our statement of faith of what it is we believe about the Father. We need to remember him specifically. We need to correct some of the misunderstanding that people have about God the Father. He does not hate you. He's not just waiting on you to sin so he can punish you and send you to hell. He is a loving God. Yes, a just God. Yes, a God who will take care of sin. But he's a loving God who sent his son to die for you. He loves you to the point that he sent his own son to take upon himself the very sin and the penalty of sin that you and I deserve. We need to remember that God the Father is a compassionate, sacrificial, personal Father to whom we can draw near. When we think about what it is to worship the Son, we need to remember that Jesus is indeed our priest, he's our mediator. And he was the ultimate sacrifice. He's the only way in which we can draw near to God. He's the only means by which sinful human beings can be reconciled to a holy God. It's through the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, that we draw near. It's through the resurrection life of Jesus that we can ultimately live for him. In a few weeks, we'll talk about, in more specific terms, what it is we believe about the Son. The third thing is what does it really mean to worship the Spirit? I think in churches like ours of our denominational bent, the Holy Spirit perhaps is one of the most misunderstood, probably the most misunderstood person of the Trinity. In churches like ours, um, we tend to maybe get a little uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit because we're not quite sure how to handle it. We've seen it 
misused and abused, but we need to realize that the Holy Spirit is the one who promotes and energizes and sanctifies our worship. That without the Holy Spirit, everything we do here this morning falls flat. And we can find comfort in the fact that we're actually indwelled by the very God we worship. That the Holy Spirit indwells you, encourages you, comforts you, and energizes you in worship. These are just a few thoughts, and I'd consider you, uh, or I'd ask you to consider thinking about other ways uh, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the worship of all three persons of the Trinity uh, might help you. Uh, there is one more passage, by the way, that I want you to look at. Flip over to John chapter 17. Um, and John chapter 17, uh, one of the things that we all have done in our attempts to explain the Trinity, perhaps to ourselves or to children or grandchildren or to somebody else, there's all of these analogies and illustrations that people have used to try to explain the Trinity, pretzels or triple action toothpaste or um, uh, three-leaf clovers and all of these crazy illustrations, most of which are more harmful than helpful. Um, but there is one illustration that Jesus uses to illustrate the oneness of God. And we see that in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, I want to read for you verses 22 and 23. This is called the high priestly prayer. Just hours before Jesus is going to be ultimately arrested and tried and crucified, he's praying to God the Father. He's praying for his disciples and he's praying for disciples of all time. And notice what he says, what he prays to God the Father there in verses 22 and 23. He says, the glory which you have given me I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that, here's the result, the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Listen, is Jesus is about to face the cross, the thing that he prays for disciples of all time, the thing that he prays for you and I here in this room is that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. So united together, so loving that the world itself will know that we are from him. I think the greatest illustration or analogy of the unity and plurality of the Trinity is us. It's not pretzels, it's not triple action toothpaste, it's not three leaf clovers, it's not eggs, it's you and I existing together in unity. There on the back side of your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider and I know again that this is a, a difficult doctrine it's a head scratcher, and so your one thing for this week is simply this. Spend some time this week reflecting on and ultimately worshiping our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I love the words of C.S. Lewis. I began with C.S. Lewis. I'll end with C.S. Lewis. He said this. He said, if Christianity was something we were making up, of course we would make it easier, but it isn't. He said, we can't compete in simplicity 
with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We're dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. Again, this morning, I find comfort in the fact that this is a difficult doctrine. It is incomprehensible. And I pray for myself and for you as we work through this study together that it brings us to a place of humility and worship. Let's pray. Father, uh, we do confess to you that you are beyond our comprehension. We thank you that you are beyond our comprehension that you are so great, so mighty, so magnificent that we will spend eternity continuing to know you and to worship you. Father, we thank you that in your love you sent your Son, the very Son of God, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Father, we thank you that through the resurrection life of your Son, We are empowered by your spirit to live for you. We thank you, Father, for sending your spirit who indwells us, who encourages us, who helps us get through until we stand before our Lord and hopefully hear him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we pray this to you through the Son and the power of the Spirit, for you are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.